Welcome, everybody. Welcome to you on Facebook. Welcome uh, to our 12 o'clock service for the people that forgot to change their clocks. We're really, really, really glad to have you here, all of our campuses. I've been at this church and in this area for almost 29 years, my wife and I have. And this is a pretty large church, if you didn't realize it. And so there are a lot of people who recognize me. Never ceases to amaze me. Most recently, it was an employee at Disneyland in California. You know, hey, aren't you? Yeah. So, so, so when I'm around the south suburbs, it's pretty easy for me to know that, you know, people know me, you know, and, and I kind of feel like Rockwell, you know. I always feel like... Somebody's watching me. That's kind of how it is when I'm around here, you know, going through Costco or whatever. And it's great. Come up and say hi. I want to do this. So I'm used to it when I'm around here. But two weeks ago, after Saturday night service, um, I, I got home. I got home before my wife did because she was working in kids and, you know, I got, I got there faster than she did. So I turned on college football because I'm really into that right now. Stayed up late watching my Oklahoma team last night. And, uh, and, and, I, and I'm watching, you know, and I'll hear a knock on the door. Now, now here's my problem, okay? I can't see out to know who it is because I have my dad made these stained glass things that go in the kind of side areas there, which are really, really pretty, but I can't see out. Everybody looks like an, an emoji or something, you know, through the glass. So I can't really tell what's going on out there. Um, so I just have to open the door and that's probably dumb. So I open the door and, you know, I mean, I don't know who it, it could be a salesman. I hadn't ordered a pizza. It could be an assassin. It could be Mormon missionaries. And it was. It was Mormon missionaries. I mean, you know, easy to tell, white shirts and ties. And, and I mean, like, you know, I was like, before I could decide how much time I was going to spend on this one, you know, the first one turns to me and says, Pastor Tim. That's my favorite new recognition story, right there in my house, okay? Evidently, they'd come and visited, and, you know, and, and we had a nice chat. And, you know, they were, they were great guys. You remembered more about my sermon than I did, and, and we had a nice conversation, and I made a mental note that I probably ought to figure out a way that I can look out the front door before I open it, okay? So, so why do they do that? That's the question. Why, do you, don't, don't you ever wonder, why do those religious groups come around and do that? And to be clear, I mean, I have some serious doctrinal differences with the way they do things, and they, they understand that um, when it comes to Jesus. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of difference, okay? And, and to be clear, number two, I don't think that going door to door really works very well. Okay, I don't think that's an, a, very, a very effective way of reaching people for something especially as important as eternity. Most people do have a way of seeing out the front door, and they're not going to answer it, okay? I don't know very many people are sitting around hoping that somebody's going to come and try to sell them something door to door, right? I mean, I like this sign. I want to get it for my own house. Uh, too broke to buy everything, anything. Already have Jesus. Don't eat a vacuum unless you're selling Girl Scout cookies. Go away. That's how most of us are, right? And, 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 and you understand that. So, so why do they do it? Why do they do it? Well, the reason that they do it is because they really believe in what they're selling, okay? I mean, some people do weird things to sell stuff because they want to make money or because, they, you know, it's their job. But the only reason a 20-year-old 
would, would put on a, a white shirt and tie and ride their bicycle around and try to convince people some, you know, really different doctrines about Jesus than they probably ever heard before is because they really believe in their message. They really believe that their church has it figured out and they really believe in what, in what they're doing. I mean, that's what they do, okay? So, so is that good? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I'm not saying it's good for them. I'm, I'm just saying it's good to believe in your mission. It's good to believe in your message. Because what I realize is that a lot of companies, a lot of churches, a lot of you know, organizations, whatever, forget what their mission is, and, and they get sidetracked, and all of a sudden, things don't go well. Blockbuster. Blockbuster is perfect illustration, right? At one point, they have 9,000 video DVD rental stores, right? In the 90s, uh, $5 billion, $6 billion revenue per year. And at the turn of the millennium, they were still expecting everybody to come to them. You remember what it was like to go to, you know, Blockbuster and hope your movie was in, you know, and what was your other choice? And Okay, that, that's where we lived back in that day. And at the turn of the millennium, there was this startup company called Netflix that offered Blockbuster $50 million to help them launch their DVD by mail service. And Blockbuster said, you're crazy. Nobody's going to want to get their DVDs through the mail. And, you know, through the mail went to being able to download them. And, and, and Blockbuster went bye-bye. And Netflix now has a market value of $152 billion. Okay? Netflix is now a verb. You realize nobody says, let's Blockbuster and chill. So what happened to Blockbuster? Well, they forgot what business they were in because they thought they were in the DVD rental business and what they were really in was the movie watching business. Netflix figured it out. They started mailing out the movies and then they figured out how you could download the movies and, and, and it's changed the face of, of, of how we do things. Why am I saying this? Well, the Mormons are still doing things the same way. They haven't really changed their, their, their methods, but their mission has remained the same, and they've stayed on it. And what happens in churches is that we forget what our mission is. We forget what our purpose is, and we start blockbustering it, okay? That's what we're going to make a verb out of that. We start blockbustering it, meaning we start doing things the same old way for our own people, and we forget that we're really supposed to be about the people on the outside. The Mormons haven't forgotten that. They haven't figured out how to change methods, but they they, they realize what the mission is, okay? What is our mission? I love the story of the lady who always cut the ends off of her ham before she cooked it. And she was teaching her teenage daughter one day. She was like, oh, this is how you do the ham. And, and the daughter was like, well, why do you cut the ends off? The lady said, I, I don't know. My mom just always taught me to do that. That's a good question. Let's call her. So they called up grandma and they said, hey, grandma, you know, why do you cut the ends off your ham? And, and grandma said, I don't really know. That's just the way my mom always taught me how to do it. So let's call her. And thankfully, great-grandma was still alive, you know. So they called great-grandma. They got on a big conference call, and they're like, hey, great-grandma, tell us why you cut the ends off your ham before you cook it. And she was like, well, I don't know why you do it. That was the size of my pan. <laughs> and that, that's what happens. We, we, the, the church especially, I mean, we forget what our mission is. We forget what we're supposed to be doing, and we get mired in doing the same things over and over again. And all of a sudden, we wake up one day, and we realize there's no young people around. There are no kids around. There, there's no, there's no, nobody from the outside, nobody that, that doesn't have Jesus hangs out at our church anymore. And that's like 99% of the churches in the U.S. This is a problem. And we've been very guilty of that as a, as a church. So there's a story in the Bible that Jesus tells that is kind 
kind of the theme story for my life, the theme story for our church, and I like to go back to it every once in a while and preach about it because it just seems like it, it's something that we can't let go of, and it has to do with this, okay? One of the most important stories of the Bible is the story of the prodigal son. And then the story of the prodigal son in a nutshell is about a boy who ran away from home and he comes back. And then the older brother is mad because he comes back because the older brother has forgotten the purpose of the father. He's forgotten the heart of the father. So I'm going to tell this in two parts. We're going to do the prodigal today. We're going to do the older brother next week. And I hope you'll come back and hear both of these, okay, or watch next week as we do both of these. Jesus is doing ministry. And Jesus, it's the same problem 2,000 years ago. The church has forgotten the heart of, of the father and who he is and about how the father is about those people that are lost, the kids that are lost. And, and, and they're just mad at Jesus because they don't like the way he's doing things, okay? They're blockbustering it, right? That's what they're doing. And Jesus is trying to help them to realize what it's supposed to be about. So Jesus is hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And there were two very polarizing views in Jesus' day that are actually always there when it comes to God. One group thinks they're never going to measure up and never have a chance of heaven. And another group thinks they're actually good enough and didn't want the unworthy people hanging around. This is the epitome of where the United States of America and probably most of the world is at this point. We have a pile of people who don't think they're ever going to measure up because they've been told they could never measure up because somehow they have to do something to measure up because they've been told that by these people who really don't care about them. They're just blockbustering it. They're just doing the same old thing because they don't really want the unworthy people hanging around. And what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is we're going to help both groups realize that they are wrong. Both groups are wrong. Here's what you got to understand. You are not bad enough to stay away from God, and you certainly aren't good enough to deserve him. There's no way that you're good enough to deserve him. We're all in the same boat. So the, the, the Pharisees are blockbustering it, right? They thought the church was supposed to be for the religious people. And Jesus said, no, you're wrong. And he tells three stories in Luke chapter 15. You want to read on your Bible app or, or along with me or whatever. There's a story about a woman who has 10 sons, uh, 10 coins, and she loses one and she goes to look for it. There's a story of a, a shepherd who has 100 sheep, and he loses one. So Jesus steps up the math and says, even if it's one out of 10, that's the priority. And then he says, even if it's one out of 100, that should be the priority, right? And, and then he tells the story that we're going to do again this week and next about a dad and his two sons. And it may be familiar to you. It never gets old to me. Charles Dickens called this the greatest short story ever written, and I would have to agree. Luke 15, 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of him said to his father, father, give me the share of his property. Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between the two sons. Now you're not getting what you need to get out of that. I can tell you, unless you've studied this culturally, you're not understanding because this sounds like, okay, you know, the son's 18, he's going to college. He's like, okay, give me my college fund, dad. I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm going to go assert my independence. What Jesus' audience would have heard from that is, oh man, that was a huge sign of disrespect. The nature of this was not about his independence. The nature of this was a radical rebellion. Basically what the son is doing, this youngest son is going, hey, dad, I want what's coming to me when you die, and I don't want to wait until you die, so give it to me now because I'm going to live like you're dead. Okay? The prodigal lived like dad was dead. Right? He said, dad, 
I don't care if you have plans for how you want me to live. I'm taking what's rightfully yours, and I'm going to Sinatra it. I'm going to make a verb out of everything today, okay? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'll do it my way, okay? All right? I'm going to Sinatra it. See, I just made up another one. I like this, right? Can you relate? I'm going to Sinatra it. I'm going to do it my way, Dad. I want to do it however. Have, we, have you done that to your father in heaven? Don't tell me how to handle my money. Don't tell me how to raise my kids. Don't tell me how to conduct my business or who I should marry or how I should react to my neighbor, for crying out loud. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live my own way. I'm going to Sinatra it. I'm, I'm going to live like I don't care that you're there, like I wish you were just dead because it doesn't matter to me. And, and all of us have, okay, if you're like, oh, yeah, that's me, uh, but these people don't know that. Oh, no, we, we've all done it. Some of us have run farther than others, but the result is still the same. The younger son set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He squandered his wealth in wild living, okay? I, I just want to tell you right now that... Um, I'm not going to be the preacher that gets up and says, hey, uh, wild living is not fun. Okay? I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that. I'm just going to be honest with you. Wild living can be fun. Okay? Just, just, just understand this. And, and I'm laughing because I, I got a joke, and I, I don't know if I should tell it so far. It's gone over pretty well, but maybe, it, maybe it, I'm going to do it anyway. 98-year-old mother superior, okay, um, she's from Ireland. She's dying, you know, and the nuns are gathered around her, and, and they're trying to make her last journey comfortable. And they gave her some, you know, some warm milk to drink, but she refused. And then one of the nuns, uh, you know, decided, well, I'm going, to take the, I'm going to take the glass back to the kitchen and warm it up again and see what happens. So she takes it back, and she realizes that there's a big bottle of Irish whiskey there that somebody had given them for Christmas the year before. And so she pours a generous amount of Irish whiskey into the warm milk, warms it back up again, takes it back to Mother Superior, okay? And she, she raises it to her lips, and she takes a little drink. And pretty soon she's like, yeah, I want a little bit more. And pretty soon she knocked the whole glass down, okay? And she started to perk up a little bit. And the nuns are all around her, and they're like, oh, Mother Superior, please, before you die, will you give us some wisdom? And she raised herself up in bed and with a very pious look on her face said, don't sell that cow. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that wasting your life in wild living isn't fun for a while. But I will tell you that it won't last, okay? I will tell you that it won't last. Watch what happens. After he had spent everything, okay? After he had spent everything, there it goes. It's all gone. All his friends deserted him. Everything's gone. He, there was a severe famine in the land. Just happens to happen at that point. And he began to be in need. And he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed his pigs. Pigs. Okay? Remember, this, these are all Jewish people listening to Jesus tell this story. And pigs are unclean. Jesus didn't say chickens. It wasn't sheep. It was pigs. There was a reason for this story. And I want to tell you something. It doesn't matter how fun wild living may seem for a little while. There's going to be a point where, where you're going to wake up one day and you're going to realize you're with the pigs. And, and the, the, the bad part about the whole thing is he, he, can't even, he can't even make a living feeding pigs. And he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
All right? So what I mean by this is the prodigal lived like dad was dead, and you can do that for a while, but usually what happens is that the prodigal, us as prodigals, end up in the last place we'd ever dream. We end up so far away from God, and you know it happens all the time. And you wake up, and you're like, it smells like pigs around here. What happened? And it may be far away, it may be not very far away, but you realize that God's on one hand and you're on the other, and you're far away from each other. And it's the last place that you'd ever dreamed. And maybe that's where you're at today. And I just want to tell you, if you're listening to the sound of my voice right now, I want to tell you I'm sorry. There's no judgment. We've all been there. We are all there. This is about coming home. This is about a journey that we're all on. And if that's you, I just want you to know that this is a church where you're going to find the love that the Father has for you. Listen to this testimony in this song. I had a pretty normal childhood. I basically had anything that I wanted. might not have been the best or the newest, but... My parents always took care of me, really loved on me and cared for me. Growing up like in high school, I was a little guy, always a, a year younger than everybody in my grade. I got picked on a lot when I got older and was drinking. I didn't have that insecurity anymore, you know what I mean? People liked me, they thought I was funny. It made me feel good, you know what I mean, to be liked and to be accepted and drinking and drugs just gave me uh you know i was like superman i felt the insecurities went away didn't feel like uh anything really could hurt me and it was fun it was a lot of fun just i thought that's how adults did it you know what i mean that i thought that's was just normal I, I was around 24 i kind of felt like it was getting out of control and it really wasn't being it wasn't fun anymore I just was uh, learning how to do enough drugs and drink enough to function during the day, which uh, I've already had two DUIs by now, but my mom bailed me out, so basically um, enabled me to not suffer any consequences, covered lawyers financially and stuff like that. So when I was 26, my daughter was born, I ended up getting my third DUI right around that time. And my daughter's only a few months old and I ended up getting arrested and uh, me and her mother were broken up by then. I was on house arrest for a few months where I got to uh, be with my daughter during the day. Next thing you know, my daughter stopped coming over. Come to find out that they moved to Arizona. Didn't ask me or anything, they just left. That was really when I really didn't care about anything anymore. Uh, There's nothing I could do to get my daughter back, or um, so I thought. You know, I was just devastated at that point. So I played the poor me card and ended up just drinking my life away and doing as many drugs as I could. But I couldn't stop, no matter how bad I wanted to stop drinking and drugging. It uh, it got me. I just remember at nighttime, sitting there like with a needle in my arm, praying that I wouldn't wake up. I woke up every time. A lot of times I'd wake up crying because I, uh, I just didn't want to do it anymore. I couldn't do it anymore. It was ridiculous. And it wasn't even me. I, I 
I didn't feel like me anymore. I was just so controlled by the drugs and alcohol that I just felt like a zombie. I was living with my grandmother and my mother told me that I couldn't live at my grandma's house anymore. My mom, she gave me an ultimatum and said either you're going back to jail or you're gonna go to rehab. Listen, I know, I know what's going on. I know how it works. I get it. I, I get how it feels. And like, I'm really, really far away. I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know how this is going to go. Listen, I think you're in a good place. Because the Apostle Paul said, we felt we were doomed to die and saw how powerless we were to help ourselves. But that was good. Because then we could put everything into the hands of God who alone could save us. I, I want you to learn a little bit about God. We're going to talk more about him next week, obviously, from this story. But what do we learn from God? Okay, Older brothers next week, that's the real point of this story. But you need to learn some things about God. Right? The first one is this. He's going to allow you to leave. Right? I mean, we have to allow our kids some independence along the way as they grow, right? I mean, when they're toddlers, they kind of rule the roost a little bit, right? Um, here's my grandchildren uh, in Nashville um, for Halloween. I, I, uh, that, Charlie was Pongo and George was Boss Baby. That's Boss Baby. It's perfect. He's 18 months old and he looks like him and he can't talk. He just walks around going, ah, ah, you know, and demanding his way. So along the way, you got you to gotta kind of help them rein that in a little bit. But you also have to give them a little bit of freedom and a little bit of independence. But the, the, the crazy thing about this story is what the, what the father did for the prodigal. Because I don't know about you, but my dad, if I would have gone to my dad and said, Dad, give me what's mine, which is really yours, but I want it. It's Sinatra time. I'm, I want it. I'm going to go on my own. I, I don't know about your dad, but my dad would have probably given me one of his famous lines. You know, something like, son, I brought you into this world. And yeah, you know my dad. I see that. Okay, yeah. Well, it's a famous dad line. And honestly, I would have done the same things to my kids. I mean, I would not have allowed the amount of freedom that this father did. And that's what's remarkable about the story. The father allows the son to leave. You know, the other great stories in Luke 15, they make sense, right? You lose a coin, you go find it. You lose a sheep, you should go find it. But the interesting part about this story is the contrast and the different kind of love that God has, that he gives us the freedom. And in case you don't know it, that's the whole story of, of our existence, all the way back to the garden. He gave us freedom, and we chose to sin and to remove ourselves from his presence. And then he provided his son to come and to pay the price so that we could be reunited with him. That's the kind of love that he has for us. But, hey, if you want to go, he's going to let you go. And the second thing is he won't shield you from the pain. I mean, maybe you're feeling some pain today. I'm not saying that God doesn't love you, but, but every parent knows you've got to allow your kid to feel some pain along the way. You need to get out of the own mess that you've got yourself into. And, and that's because he really knows the only safe place for the son is back home. 
right? I, I ask you this question, would the son have gone home if he wasn't desperate? And of course the answer is a big fat no, of course he wouldn't. If he still had his trust fund, if he still had his friends, if he was still able to do everything that he was doing, he wouldn't have turned around and come home. And if you're feeling some pain today, maybe it's because you've messed some things up in your life and God is going, hey, I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna let you feel that for a little while because that's the only thing that's gonna help you come home. When he came to his senses, okay, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger, okay? And I am here starving to death, and I will set out, and I will go back to my father, and here's what I'm going to do. Here's his plan. I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, and he went to his father, okay? The Bible calls that repentance, it's a repentance, okay? If you've lived like God was dead and you ran away from him and you used his stuff for however you wanted to and sinatra it on your own and you felt the pain of living outside the will of God, today is the day for you to turn around and come home. You hear preachers use that word in a, in a kind of a dumb way, but really all it means is to turn around and come home. You're going to repent. And I, I want to invite you to do that today. As a matter of fact, We've had people at, at this campus, and we'll do this again next week, just at the end of the service, if you feel like, you know, I, I, I just want to come home. I want to come in. I want to do this. Just come on up and walk through the gate. It could be a nice day for you just to do something on your own to say, God, I'm coming home. If you want some help, we have a text line at 62953. And if you just text coming home to that, that number, Somebody's going to get back to you, and we're going to help you on your journey. We have people to pray with you at all of our campuses. If, if, you, want to, if you want to have somebody pray with you, just go to one of the tables at your campus somewhere in, in, your, in your auditorium. If you're online, if you're using our Parkview app, there's a Next Steps card on your app that you can actually use. We want to help you. But, I mean, you don't need us to help you. We just want to help you any way that we can. And we're going to take communion in a moment here and... and it's just a moment when you can say, Dad, I want to come home. That's all you got to do. Because here's the, here's the rest of the story. He will always welcome us home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, you're grounded. <laughs> no, that's not who he is. Father said, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. He wouldn't even let the apology come out of his mouth. He said, no, it doesn't matter. You're here. Now, there's some things about this passage of Scripture, one of the most important passages about God in the Bible that are really important. Notice it said, while he was still a long way off. Did you notice that? What does that mean? Well, I, I don't know. You put two and two together. All that could mean is that maybe one day the father just happened to be walking by and he looked out and he saw the son a long way off. But from what I can tell the father, my guess is that the father has been standing there every waking moment since the prodigal son has left and he's been 
been looking, he's been searching, he's been hoping, he's been praying, and the gate has been open ever since he left. And when he saw him a long way off, it says he ran. He was filled with compassion, and he ran to his son. Again, to understand the context, Aristotle, the great philosopher, said, great men never run. Great men are run too. Remember this culture back then. A a grown, distinguished man would never run. Remember they got those little robe things going on. I talked about this with Zacchaeus, right? I mean, you're not going to run unless you're really, really excited, unless you don't care what people think about you. Do you see what Jesus is saying about the heart of God? He's been looking for you ever since you've been gone, and as soon as you turn around and start coming home, he's going to run to get you because he's not going to care about what anybody else things are about his dignity. The only thing that matters is that you come home. And when he finds you, he's going to throw his arms around you. And you can try to apologize all you want to, but he's going to say, it doesn't matter. You're home. That's all I wanted. And then the, the Bible says he started kissing his son. He kissed, he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The translation for that word is literally over and over and over again, over and over again. He can't stop. He just embraces his son. And the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he was going to say, I just want to be a servant. But the father cut him off. said, no, it doesn't matter. Hey, you guys. He couldn't even talk to the son. All he could do was kiss him. That's the heart of God towards you. Listen to the end of Dave's story. It's amazing. I knew I couldn't keep going the way I was. You know, I've been so numb for years and years to where I didn't even know how to feel happiness or pain or sadness just because I was so numb. My mom picked me up in the morning and drove me to Waukegan and dropped me off and said, um, good luck and we'll see ya. I'm in rehab, so I got on my knees that day that my mom dropped me off and I surrendered to God and I asked him to please take this from me. I felt a huge weight lifted off me. I mean a huge weight. And I just, I felt like I had a beam of light on me. You know, I felt the Holy Spirit totally fill me up and basically rededicated my life, you know, because I feel I was saved and had Christ living in me that whole time. I don't think I could have went through all that stuff and lived without the hand of God on me and protecting me. I knew that God can do anything. I just never tried. I knew God could take it from me. I knew God could help me. Just the drugs had me. So one day at a time, that's how I went from August 25th, 2013 to now. I just have to stay sober today. I have to do the next right thing. So um, in my life, that is doing God's will and accepting things that happen to me. Thankfully, God blessed me with the most beautiful woman in the world, has a heart for God and loves God just as much as I do. My daughter Sophia was born the beginning of June, and my son was born the end of June the next year. So my children are a year apart. They, they both are just amazing, amazing babies. You know, no matter how bad of a day I'm having, and you know, I could walk into the house and I hear them both running across the floor, and you know, Dad is home, and just everything goes away. I'm just grateful that the Lord has blessed me with 
those two beautiful babies. I know how much I love my children and what I would do for them. And no matter what they do to me, I will always love them and take care of them. It's really easy now to look at God that way and feel the love, and especially when I'm trying to do His will and be pleasing to Him. There's a Bible verse that I love, and it's, uh, then being evil, knowing how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts unto you? It just really sums up how I feel about God, and I know that's how He feels about me, because He's always shining blessings down on me, always. That's our mission. That's what we're about. One of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey, wrote a more modern-day parable of the prodigal. Young girl grows up in the cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Parents are very old-fashioned. They tend to overreact to her music and the length of her skirts and the things that she does. They ground her a few times, and she's mad. They have arguments. She yells, I hate you. One night, she acts on a plan that she's rehearsed scores of times, and she runs away. She's visited Detroit once before, and she knows the way newspapers report about Detroit and Traverse City with the gangs and the drugs and the violence. It's the last place her parents will look for her. Her second day in Detroit, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen, offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay, Gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. Good life continues for a month, for two months, for a year. Man with a big car, she calls him boss, and he teaches her a few things. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but seems so far away. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of the milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now, she's changed her hair and makeup. Nobody's going to know who she is. After a year, the first signs of illness appear. It amazes her how fast her boss turns mean. Before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks at night, but they don't pay much. All the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on a metal grate outside a department store, although sleeping is the wrong word. Teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything in her life just looked different. She was no longer a woman of the world. She was a little girl again. She was hungry. She was needing a fix. She pulled her legs tight underneath and shivered underneath the newspaper, and somehow something jolted a memory, and a single image filled her mind of May and Traverse City when a million cherry tree bloom blossoms happen at the same time. God, why did I leave, she says to herself. Pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing, and in a flash, more than anything else she knows, she wants to go home. It's the cry of the human heart to go home. She makes three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. 
I'm thinking about maybe coming home. I'm going to catch a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I'll just stay on the bus until it gets to Canada. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. During that time, she realizes the flaw in her plan. What if her parents were out of town and missed the message? She should have waited another day. She should have talked to them. Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech that she's prepared for her father. I'm going to say, Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words, rehearses the words over and over again, her throat tightening as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone for years, but this is going to be different. When the bus finally rolls into the station, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in the mirror, smooths her hair, and walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. And not one of a thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters, great aunts and uncles, cousins, grandmother, great-grandmother. And they're all wearing goofy party hats, blowing noisemakers. Taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a huge banner that says, Welcome home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her father. And she stares at him, tears quivering in her eyes, and begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. He puts his hand up and interrupts her. Hush, child. Got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. There's a banquet waiting for you at home. Jesus says that that is who your heavenly father is. He says that is the heart of the father for you. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, however bad it seems to you, gates open. And he can't wait for you to come home. And if he sees you, even if you're a long way off, he's going to run to you. You won't even have to run to him. And he's going to throw his arms around you, and he's going to throw you a party, and he's going to put his hand up and say, I don't need to hear about it. I know about it. I just want to love you. That's who the Father is. And here's what I know about Parkview. That will always be our story. This gate will always be open. Parkview will always be about the prodigals. If I live to be 100 and I come back and visit one of the kids that could be in the nursery right now who might be the senior pastor at that point, and he doesn't get this, I will open up a 100-year-old can and <laughs> I will make sure that he understands or she understands what is supposed to go on in this church because we are going to always be about those people on the outside. If you don't understand that about us, this is why we are doing, I can't even believe I'm saying this, 24 Christmas Eve services at our three campuses. That's four more than we've ever done before, okay? I, 
I'm doing more than I've ever done before. Why do we do that? Because we know that Christmas might be a time for your people to be able to go, hey, um, I, I might come with you to a Christmas Eve service. Heard it's pretty crazy there at Parkview, and I need to do something for Christmas, so I'll come, okay? There are blank tags in your bulletin. If you just see that on the very back of your bulletin, uh, there's a perforated edge there, and there are some little name tags like, like you would put on a, on a present. And what I want to ask you to do is to think about somebody that you're you're going to invite. And hey, by the way, we're also doing at the movies during Christmas. So anytime during Christmas, almost all new movies, I'm doing one over again after Thanksgiving because it was so fun. But, but, but other than that, all new Christmas movies, still no Die Hard, but it's a great opportunity for you to be able to bring your friends uh, and, and hear the message of Christmas. So what I want you to do is I want you to write their name on there. Or put a code on there because if you don't, you know, don't want anybody to know or whatever. And there are trees that you can place these at on the way out of all of our campuses. And the reason I want you to write their name down is because if you write their name down, we're going to pray for them. And if you write their name down, you're probably going to go, oh, I guess I have to really invite them, right? So I'm, I'm trying to put the pressure on right now. And I want you to tell them, tell them to go online and listen to this message and say, hey, by the way, you're welcome here. The roof's not going to cave in. We want you to come and this would be a great opportunity for you. And here's what you need to know. Some of you that are listening to me right now, your name was on a piece of paper that your friend or your family member put somewhere at one of our campuses at some point along the way. At the very core of this whole Christianity deal is that Jesus can wipe away our sins and take us to be with God someday. That's what Jesus taught. That's what we believe. And if we care about you, if we care about the people that you care about, we will always have room. Some Christians are fine just knowing that their own ticket is stamped. They're blockbustering it. Not me. Some want to live within the sound of the chapel bell. C.T. Studd said, this is one of my mantras, but I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. The, the key to the stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15 are found right here. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than all the rest of you 99 that didn't need to repent. In the same way I tell you there's rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who comes home. That's the heart of the Father. He loves us as a father would love his own children. And we want to help because we are you. We are just a church full of people that are on our way back home. And you're welcome here. It's always time to come home. We're gonna do communion. And um, if you've not done that here, all believers are welcome to join us at this point. And if this is your time to be a believer, then this could be the moment for you. We're gonna pray. We're gonna pass the trays across. There's bread in the bottom cup and juice in the top cup. So you're pulling out two cups at the same time. And we're all going to do it together, so just pull them out and hold it. And we're going to sing Good, Good Father while we do it. And I want to invite you to turn and come home during this prayer. Pray with me. Father, if there are people who've, uh, they're not sure if they're a believer, and they're not sure if they're home, if they, if they can even be home, will you please touch their heart right now and let them just pray this with me. Father God, I want to come home. I realize now that you love me. I realize that you've been looking for me for a long time. 
I realize that you sent your son to die on a cross to pay for all the things that I've done wrong and all the things that I will do wrong. And Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I'm coming home. I'm going to take communion today. Lord, for those who aren't listening to this message that we all know, we pray for them as we think about how we can help them to find their way home, maybe during the Christmas season coming up. Perfect time. And for all of us who are here as a part of this church, don't let us ever blockbuster it, Father. Don't let us ever forget what we're supposed to be about, the mission. We're running a chapel a yard from the gates of hell. And it's messy, and it's scary, and it's hot. But that's where we're supposed to be. Thank you that we get to be there. Thank you for those who are ready to come home today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.